work is overwhelming, it's deeply satisfying, but I think we all struggle with the realities of the global challenges that are faced by human rights. One of the uh, key factors that facilitates extrajudicial summary arbitrary executions is impunity, and therefore improved capacity to bring those responsible to justice is fundamental. We have already done the research and looked at the law and found that if these are indeed events that happen, they are violations of international human rights law. This is The Lid Is On, I'm Connor Lennon. For this show, we're back in the main UN studio because today I need the space. I'm joined by three of the dozens of UN special rapporteurs who are in the building, having schlepped over to New York to brief on their activities. Before I introduce them, first of all, a brief explanation of who exactly UN special rapporteurs are and what they do. First of all, they're independent, and this is important. They're appointed by the UN Human Rights Council, but they're not employed by the UN. They don't get a UN salary, and they serve in their personal capacity. This means they can speak freely without having to worry too much if their findings will upset any particular country. They're all prominent human rights experts addressing a wide range of issues, and their tasks include responding to individual complaints, conducting studies, and visiting countries in order to assess specific rights situations. I wanted to find out more about what it's like to be a special rapporteur and why they're willing to give up their time to cover what are often difficult situations. So I'm grateful to this high-powered trio who are with me today. We have Nazila Haney, the special rapporteur on freedom of religion or belief, Morris Tidbull-Bintz, the special rapporteur on extrajudicial summary or arbitrary executions, and Fanula Nyealoin, the special rapporteur on the promotion and protection of human rights and fundamental freedoms while countering terrorism. A very long title for you. Uh, why don't I start with you, actually, Fanula, because you said that you're coming to the end of your time here. So tell me, what, you know, what's it like? What's it been like for you being a special rapporteur? Well, I think for all of us, obviously, we've exercised our functions, or at least Morris and I have exercised our functions through COVID. So regularly speaking, the work of a special rapporteur is to issue communications on individual situations of uh, particular human rights concern related to your mandate, to undertake country visits, and to issue um, reports to the General Assembly and the Human Rights Council. So it's been challenging because, of course, there's been two years of my mandate that we haven't been able to travel. and But... I'm now back on the road again and the regular life of a special rapporteur involves I think an enormous amount of travel at least for my mandate and um, it generally involves I think given the scale and crisis of human rights around the globe an overwhelming I would call it tsunami of work coming towards all of our mandates and often the resources needed to address that sort of global challenge of human rights being deficient being absent and for my mandate in particular, I double hat because the mandate, as well as being a Geneva mandate, is a member of the Global Counterterrorism Coordination Compact here in New York. So the mandate also spends a lot of time here in, in UN headquarters. And I think all of that to say that for every special rapporteur, mine I would say as well, the work is overwhelming, it's deeply satisfying, but I think we all struggle with the realities of the global challenges that are faced by human rights, the crisis in funding for human rights, and the reality that all of us have day jobs and that we have other things that we also have to attend to in our, if you want, regular non-special rapporteur life. I mean, obviously, you know, you work in the human rights field in your day job, but how difficult is it to fit this in? As we said, you don't get a 
salary to do this? We don't, and I, I think it's challenging. For many of us, it requires having home, if we're academics, having home institutions that are prepared to see the value of what you might call the public service work that we do and supporting it, and often materially supporting it by releasing us from our time or giving us research support so we can do the underpinning work that drives much of the reporting that we do. For some of us, I include my, it involves, it involves fundraising so that we have resources and personnel to help us do our work. Um, and I think it, the biggest challenge is balance. Even on your best day, you are dealing with far more than you can do in any mandate. Each one of our mandates is enormously complex, sensitive and challenging. And there are always far more demands on your time than you have the capacity to respond to. And I think many of us, I would say myself, I, I struggle with making choices where I will have to say on a particular day, no, we cannot address that situation, even if it's compelling and you have deep concerns about it because you don't have the resources. Now, Nazila, you're the newbie in the room, I think. Uh, you were appointed relatively recently. Uh, tell me a bit about your journey. How did you come to take on this role? Well, I have been studying around the mandate and, you know, human rights topics related to it and teaching on it and researching it for some 25 years. Um, and in fact, I was almost appointed 12 years ago to this mandate, but I was blocked by my country and they got 57 governments to rise up against me. So that didn't happen. What were the reasons? Uh, my religion. So, you know, it's pretty ironic, freedom of religion or belief, and you get plo uh, blocked but, uh, f for your religion. But I think that just create, you know, confirms to us how important this work is, that if it can even happen at this level, then of course it's happening on the ground around the world for, for many um, religious and belief minorities and um, those who choose not to believe. So um, I, I was nominated again this time, and this time it was uh, <laughs> here I am since the 1st of August. Amoris, you're a medical doctor by training, so a little bit different, you're not from academia in that sense, but um, your work though has had a a direct impact on what you're doing as a special rapporteur. Indeed, uh, I'm actually the first physician, especially the first forensic doctor, uh, charged with a with a, a, sp a special procedure mandate. And especially for this mandate, it's uh, it's it's quite relevant. Um, and I I accepted the nomination. Uh, precisely uh, on that basis because the mandate provides a, a wonder, wonderful opportunity to promote better forensic practices and more generally investigative capacity worldwide. I am convinced from my experience in the field that one of the uh, key factors that facilitates extrajudicial summary arbitrary executions is impunity is lack of accountability for, for these crimes and therefore improved capacity to investigate them and to bring those responsible uh, to justice is fundamental. And, uh, and I do believe the mandate, uh, which has played a key role in promoting best practices uh, on this and other domains over its 40 years of existence, uh, can further benefit from having uh, mandate, uh, as a mandate holder uh, a, a, a medical and forensic professional. Uh, that's that's a key, the key reason, the main reason why I accepted the uh, the appointment, actually. And now that you've been in the job for a while, or not a job, the post for a while, what have you learned? How 
how difficult is it? You said it's quite overwhelming, uh, but how are you finding that workflow? It is overwhelming in as much as, as it's a 24-7 it's a commitment with a very uh, high level of demand and, and stress as well, uh, given the, the complexity and the gravity of issues that come to my attention. And the decisions that have to be made, uh, including with regards to the very little resources that we have to operate and act and respond to, uh, to these challenges. And as Fionnala mentioned, I mean, our range of activities uh, includes communications to states, uh, which is a, uh, it's a core activity, but also visits to countries and a number of other activities in the field, including in my case, um, providing technical assistance and advice to states and other stakeholders on improved medical, legal, forensic, and other types of investigation. The mandate is 40 years old this year, actually, uh, and over its existence, it, it played a, a key, key role um, as a voice of the victims, uh, conveying uh, the plight of the victims, identifying cases and bringing them to the attention of states and the international community, but also developing standards, including um, what is today a gold standard in forensic medicine for investigating unlawful killings, which is the Minnesota Protocol. What is missing is implementation. So I made a motto for my tenure, which is implementation now. And that's where precisely my professional background can be of great help. Now, just that, about that overwhelming nature of things, it must be very difficult. You receive complaints, so you're receiving information, which must be quite distressing a lot of the time, and you must feel a great sense of responsibility. Do you, do you have a sort of camaraderie amongst yourselves? Do you discuss things between yourselves and how you're able to cope with the role? So, you know, there are other actors and other voices in each of these human rights arenas. So first of all, of course, we need to strengthen working amongst uh, each other. For example, our three mandates overlap. Mm -hmm. When somebody is targeted on grounds of their religion or belief, they might face summary execution. They might be discriminated against because they are expected to be terrorists. I mean, they, their community is uh, maligned with, with that. Um, so there's that cooperation. There's the cooperation with UN sister agencies. So, you know, many who are facing discrimination and persecution leave their country, then they become, they're seeking asylum, they might be in limbo for years. Um, so, you know, that would implicate UNHCR, for example. But there are other actors and civil society organizations. So I draw a lot of energy by uh, also being in touch with those actors. Some of them are intergovernmental bodies, some are regional or sub-regional bodies. And I w in one of my reports, I want to look at sub-national actors and freedom of religion or belief. So, you know, we see these, um, promising examples. You, you were talking about how to operationalize it in, in your mandate. I also want to look at countries where the, you know, the situation of freedom of religion and belief may not be particularly distinguished, <laughs> let's put it that way. But there are cities or a state or a region that is better than the others or even might have a harmonious uh, environment for the flourishing or the diversity of religion and belief. So what, what are those actors? Sometimes we can also benefit from, from their work and certainly their research and reporting. So even though you have a specific matter, you don't feel like you're on, on your own. You feel like you're part of something bigger and that you can, you can get support. 
I mean, I, I would say yes. I think there are mandates who overlap, and I think many of us work very closely together, sometimes because we're working on specific countries that overlap interests. Sometimes it's thematic issues that overlap. I think one of the structural things I've noticed as Special Rapporteur in my time is that we've had, if you look at the number of joint communications from special procedure mandate holders, and sometimes, for example, on really contentious issue, maybe I'll, I'll choose the example of the annexation or proposed annexation of East Jerusalem, every single mandate holder signed a common position. So we're seeing, uh, arguing that that was contrary to international law. So we've, we've seen these sort of movements of special rapporteurs working more closely together and therefore lessening the burden on each one, moving pieces of work sometimes that fit better in one mandate to another mandate. And um, I think we're all aware, and I think Ziz's comments about civil society is both an enormous resource and enormous support to us, but it's worth noting that civil society in many parts of the world is under enormous stress. Mm -hmm. It's being choked and cut down. We've seen that both literally being killed on the streets, but also subject to all kinds of direct and indirect forms of harassment by governments. So we also play this in some ways protective role and noting that our capacity to protect is very limited. We have, we have our voice to say what we see happening to members of civil society, and, and that's a responsibility, but also it's a, it's a burden. I think increasingly all of us are aware of the burdens of self-care, of recognizing that, as Mari said, it could be 24-7, but actually if you work 24-7, you become unable to do your job because you're too tired. You, um, and, and, and that you won't be effective as a special rapporteur if you're not also managing your work-life bur burden or balance in a good way. Now those joint communiques you mentioned, is part of that to, um, to make them less personalized? So you can't just say this is Nazila's opinion, this is Morris's opinion. Is, is part of that to not give, could be bad actors, states, uh, media in a particular country, not give them the opportunity to say this is just one person's view so it has less relevance. It's actually, uh, it's actually a joint opinion mm -hmm. from a number of experts. Indeed, uh, the, the uh, joining uh, communications is one strategy, I would say, uh, that we use quite often. Just for example, uh, since my last report to the GA one year ago, I have issued 194 communications to states and 73 press releases. Uh, more than two-thirds of those communications and press releases were actually uh, prepared jointly with other, with other mandates. And, uh, and in, in many cases, uh, that, that collegial effort uh, is crucial to not only getting the message through, but to ensuring impact. There are some cases where the, uh, the issue is so specific that the mandate, mandate specificity is required for the details of the communication and as a result other mandates may not feel inclined or uh, feel that they have a, a specific issue with that particular concern and that's absolutely fine um, but I would say that today as a practice as a collegial practice we tend to always reach out to our colleagues within the special procedure system for joint statements 
albeit communications to states or press releases. And very often those communications or press releases get picked up by national media or by, by international media if it's a, if it's a really a big country involved. Uh, does any of that result in blowback for you personally? Have you had any situations that are a bit uncomfortable? I mean, I said you don't have to worry about the feedback because you're independent, uh, but there must have been some situations which have, which have got a bit tricky. I mean, I would say that we have a well-documented history of reprisals, including against special rapporteurs. That's not a new phenomenon. Individual special rapporteurs, whether it's in the context of a particular visit or a communication, there have been documented challenges of governments um, threatening or um, calling out that individual. Have I you faced any, any situations yourself? I think a number of us have. What I would say is rather than what, how we manage that is really important. We have a process as special procedure mandate holders. We have a coordination committee that represents us as a group. Um, when a state feels that a mandate holder has either overstepped the bounds of their mandate or they're deeply, let's say, unhappy with something you've said, we have a mechanism for states to actually voice their complaint in a formal, uh, constructive, way in which actually there can be an evaluation of whether in fact the mandate holder has overstepped the mandate. I would say we're all very careful about overstepping our mandates. We're all deeply conscious that if we move outside of the scope of our mandate, if we don't, um, if we don't justify the work we do on, on good fact-finding, on excellent sourcing, on legal analysis that is first class and, 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 and well, well articulated, we expose ourselves to states saying, you're not being fair to us. You're calling us out in ways that are, that are not, not fair. I, I would say many states are deeply sensitive about criticism. This is the truth. And, um, but I also think unless states accept the value of criticism, that they understand that actually this is really about ensuring that they govern better that the rule of law is better in the countries that they are from, and that the overall effort of advancing human rights, which is in the benefit of their societies, that's not going to happen unless we can do our job. But I do get the sense that you, because you have this independence, that you can and you do uh, go in for some more trenchant criticism than, say, senior UN officials. I think that's a fair comment. <laughs> And, and, you know, we see, the, we see the, the pushback from countries as well. And um, so you, you're saying that it, it's sometimes in, not in your best interest to go for the big headline, the, for the punchy, um, the punchy soundbite that might get more attention. I mean, I think different mandate holders have different view. My view is there's a, there's a role for going public with issues that are important, where that is the only way that you can really force attention to a particular issue. But I'm also a great believer in constructive dialogue with states, that actually sometimes your best and your most effective work will be done out of public sight. Not always. And there's, that's, I think, the exercise of judgment that we all have to exercise. I don't think, um, in general, special rapporteurs are headline chasers. That's not, we're, we're not appointed because that's, that's generally not the profile that comes of a person who comes into a special rapporteur ma mandate. Generally, we're folks who have spent most of our life engaged in advocacy, writing, meticulously engaging in usually constructive ways. And I, I think, so there's a balance in that. And sometimes that balance involves making a public statement, issuing press releases, being 
Um, but you do that because that's the only way, in fact, that you can bring attention to a serious human rights issue. But it's, it's just one of many tools that you have in your toolbox as a special rapporteur. Well, Nazila, what, what's your approach going to be as you're just a few months in? Are you going for the big headlines or more behind the scenes? What do you think is going to be the best no. way to draw attention to these issues? No, it's both. Um, but, for example, I'm, uh, if I'm invited by a journalist to, uh, to speak to them or on a program, I'm, I'm asking them what the subject matter is. So as before, as a pro professor of human rights law, uh, I could speak on anything. Um, I mean, now I'm more aware of my mandate and that there's value added on keeping focused on that, on that mandate. So, you know, I'll be a free agent again in six years' time to talk about any topic. But for now, I want to use my voice in relation to the mandate. Sometimes you're in the exploration or, you know, you're researching a topic and other times you've produced a report and you want to firmly comment on it. Or if it's on the back of a communication that has come to your office, you have shared it with the state and they have 60 days where it's confidential and they haven't responded. Why wouldn't we go public with that? After 60 days, we will we'll go public because we have invited the state to respond on the grounds of particular information and they have refused to respond. So I, I'm not going to chase a headline with it, but I certainly will be very willing to go on record to say, we approached you on this and we didn't hear back and therefore I am concerned about this issue and want to draw attention to it because we have already uh, done the research and looked at the law and found that if these are indeed events that happen, they are violations of international human rights law. What are the things that you really get out of doing this? Well, as I mentioned before, I mean, the, the mandate provides a, a wonderful and I would say unique opportunity to advance the cause of human rights on the specific uh, domain of a mandate uh, and in my particular case as I mentioned before as a physician and a forensic doctor uh, it, it, it's, it's a channel to promote best practices which is unmatched by any other channel or means that I have had through my professional life. Uh, I, going back to this this question of, of, of cooperation and, and resources, um, I, I'd like to mention the fact that today we, some of us actually had the opportunity to meet with the Secretary General and precisely to talk about some of these things. Um, and, uh, and it was mentioned that uh, communications, as important they are, um, uh, and, 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 and as we mentioned, I mean, a, a key tool for our work, uh, and sometimes that, that, that requires uh, denouncing situations uh, as, they, as they happen. Um, uh, but unlike, unlike communications, uh, constructive dialogue, and especially uh, providing technical assistance and, and, and working on the ground are quite resource intensive. In that sense, the difficulties that we face are precisely the limitation of resources for which cooperation and collegiality, etc., uh, are a means to overcoming uh, these, these, uh, these difficulties. One particular point that was raised in today's uh, meeting with the Secretary General was precisely uh, the need for improving cooperation with UN agencies and especially especially the resident coordinators and the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights in the field and of course in Geneva and elsewhere. 
Uh, and it is through that cooperation that, at least in my experience, in my short experience of a year and a half in the mandate, that I have seen the most uh, concrete and practical results for the victims and for advancing human rights in terms of implementing activities and practices on the ground that have a direct impact in improving human rights, including, as I mentioned before, forensic capacity building, where such capacity is applied to documenting cases that can then be brought to justice to bring the perpetrators to account. And Azila, it's just been a few months for you, but what have you been enjoying about the role? Well, you know, it's 36 years of the mandate. There's been six mandate holders. I've known four of them. And it is uh, a real pr privilege to, um, you know, in all humility, to bring one's network, everything one has studied about the previous reports, the rea you know, how we read rea reality now, and you know, where we've seen the gaps or the issues that haven't been adequately addressed and finding creative ways <laughs> in cooperation with others to address them. Because yes, it's not as if we have tens of people behind us, well-resourced and able to you know, send uh, armies into places to research a particular topic. But it's a privilege to try and um, advance this work with, with every, all the limitations that it has, but also all the opportunities. Um, and, you know, we are the only ones that can issue a UN letter uh, on the, an individual can write to us saying, these things happened to me. We build it up into, with it, the international human rights law sources. And with a UN letterhead, we approach the government. And then there's a URL for that victim to advance their advocacy into the future on the back of a UN um, intervention on the matter. And, you know, we shouldn't dismiss that. We see victims around the world for which right. this could shift. I mean, it can be life and death in actually all three yeah. of our mandates. Yeah. And finally, Fanilo, you're coming to the end of your mandate. Have you got any tips you want to pass on <laughs> to the newbies here on, on how to get the most out of the role? I mean, I, I would agree that it's an extraordinary, it's a rare privilege to have this role. It's a rare privilege of access to governments to be able to really dialogue, meet with, and sometimes have robust and sometimes not agreeable conversations with governments about the most important issues of our times. It's a, an extraordinary privilege to work with human rights actors, activists in multiple countries, and understand, come to like a deeper knowledge of regions and places that you didn't know so well before you became mandate holder. And I think it's a real privilege to be tested. I've had my assumptions tested by being in this mandate. I work in a security mandate and I talk to governments about some of the most sensitive issues around national security and, and, and issues that are really difficult for governments where there's not always easy choices. There are human rights choices to be made, but sometimes the range of choices, particularly for governments struggling with resource limitations, are real. And you come to have, I think, a greater complexity of understanding mm. uh, in all of that. And I think it changes you as a person. I, I have almost one year left in mandate. And I feel like as a human rights actor, as an academic, um, as a policy person, I have been profoundly changed by the experience of being a special rapporteur. So um, with all of the hard stuff, and there's plenty of hard stuff, um, I think I do not know a single person who served a special rapporteur who hasn't acknowledged the privilege that it has been to serve. Well, it's been a privilege to speak to all of you as well. Fanuni Aoloin, Nazila Ganey and Morris Tyndall-Bentz, thank you so much. We, of course, are here every Friday 
and you can like and subscribe to make sure you don't miss a single episode. I'm Connor Lennon and this has been The Lid Is On.